Imagine the scene. Crowds are gathering around the Lord Jesus Christ. They're anxious to hear his message. And so our Lord takes the opportunity to direct his address to his disciples who are about to face serious challenges in the discharge of their ministerial labors. He urges them to trust God who will uphold them in all of their trials. He warns them not to imbibe the hypocritical influence of the Pharisees. Instead, he urges them to fear Almighty God and not powerless men, to plainly speak the truth, openly confessing God for men, trusting Him to provide for all of their needs, spiritual and material. He utters a most sober warning to, not to sin against the Holy Spirit, but instead to trust the Spirit to give them utterance when they shall be inevitably dragged away before rulers and authorities because of their faithful discharge of their ministerial stewardship called by Christ to preach the gospel. And in the midst of this intense instruction on these most crucial and critical matters, the Lord Jesus is suddenly interrupted by a careless, distracted man who demands him to settle a family squabble. Jesus uses this interruption as an opportunity to address this man as well as his apostles and those that were gathered together to hear him, warning them against the sin of covetousness. Jesus' reproof introduces us to what has been called the parable of the rich fool. And this morning we will consider only the interruption and Jesus' response to it. And Lord willing, we'll consider that parable next Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. Please follow with me as I read the first 12 verses. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom, you whom you are to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me, me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me shall be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak 
in your defense or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Then we'll begin here at verse 13 with that background. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. And then follows the parable of the rich fool. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this morning, we have two headings in our exposition. And then we will come to a few words of application. Notice, first of all, the providential circumstances that sets the stage for Jesus' parable in verses 13 and 14. We're going to consider two things. First of all, an interruption resulting from a family argument in verse 13. So what's going on here? This man interrupts Jesus, he's preaching, he's speaking about very solemn things that are facing the disciples, preparing them to face even persecution and arrest and imprisonment for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So apparently two brothers are in the audience. They may have been shuffling their feet, they may have been looking at each other with glowers. And so they interrupt the Lord Jesus, they're embroiled in a, a family argument over the distribution of the inheritance. One probably feels that he is being cheated and he wants the Lord Jesus Christ to adjudicate this matter and settle it in his favor. You see, rabbis were expected to solve family problems. And so these squabbling brothers interrupted Jesus, demanding that he settle this family feud. We may observe from this incident a common problem. Many sit distracted like these two men under the preaching who are focused upon any other thing than the ministry of the word. One preacher commenting here has observed the character of a man is often indicated by the direction which his thoughts take when he is listening to a religious exhortation. Commonly, indeed, the speaker gets all the blame if he cannot hold the attention of his hearers to the subject which he desires to impress upon them. But frequently, the true sense is to be found in the fact that the soul of his hearer is enthralled by some overpowering passion. Here, for example, the greatest of all preachers, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, while speaking of such important matters as the danger of hypocrisy, the comfort that comes from the knowledge of God's universal providence, 
and the duty of confessing the truth before men, relying upon the promised help of the Holy Spirit, is interrupted by the sudden question of one with a topic that had nothing whatsoever to do with those things the Lord was handling. Brethren, isn't it not often the case that we may come like these two brothers? We've got something on our mind, something that's distracted us, some undone business from last week, or we're thinking about what's waiting for us in the coming week, and we're thinking about the issues of time and are totally unconcerned about the great matters of eternity. So there's a lesson here, beloved. When we sit under preaching preoccupied with something rather than the matter of the sermon, we are likely to miss important eternal truths from the Word of God. We need to come here, we need to come expecting that we are going to hear the voice of God. And when we are distracted in our thinking, we need to get along with God, if not physically, at least mentally. Lord, give me ears to hear. Didn't Jesus often say, he who has ears, let him hear? Indeed, we are to come here to the preaching of the Word of God, saying, Lord, my ears are tiny. Make them large. Open them up so that I might hear your voice in the preaching of the Word of God. Now, notice here that our Lord wasn't distracted. He saw in the present interruption a teachable moment. He didn't skip a beat. He seized upon it and he used it as an opportunity to address the sin of covetousness that lay beneath this, these brothers' argument. And see, he knew that covetousness is a very common sin. And so before addressing the subject with a warning following the parable, he gives an instructive reproof to these brothers. And he does this in the form of a question. So notice then, after... Considering the interruption, notice Jesus' reproving question in verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Did you come here just to have this matter settled? And if so, where is your authority to tell me my business? So this rude interruption deserved a se severe rebuke from the Lord. Notice that he just calls him man. And we, we see a comparison and a contrast in verse 4. He addresses them as friends, and now he speaks to this man rather pointedly. To the immediate point, Jesus teaches that he came into this world not to resolve family disputes. He knew that settling this financial squabble wouldn't solve the real problem between these brothers, which wasn't financial. It was spiritual in nature. Secondly, and more importantly, Jesus wanted his audience to know that he came into this world not as a social reformer. He didn't come to bring civil change. He could have settled the case, but... That was the responsibility of civil magistrates. And Jesus says, go see them to settle your matter, in effect. Jesus' kingdom, you see, is not of this world. He refused to be diverted from the purpose from which he was sent into this world by his Father. He came to save sinners. He came to prepare them for the kingdom of God. Our Lord teaches here that he came not as a social justice warrior or as a cultural reformer, but as the redeemer of sinners, calling men not to social reformation, but to repentance and to holiness of life. And so there's a lesson here for us, I think a very relevant lesson in our day. Brethren, the role of the church in the world is not to advance civil rights, but to extend God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. 
As one as well said, Christianity leaves civil rights where it finds them. Now, it is true that civil rights will be positively impacted when sinners are liberated by faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Christians will work and pray to see righteous laws enacted and obeyed in the world. But beneficial social change is produced not by legislation, but by regeneration. Only as human society is leavened by the life-changing influence of the gospel will the condition of men be truly and lastingly improved in this world. The gospel, this gospel, its purpose is to bring men to Jesus Christ. And in bringing men to Jesus Christ, they will change the world. Indeed, we... We sing these lyrics from our, one of my favorite hymns, Lead on, O King Eternal. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. So that's the providential circumstances that set the stage for Jesus' parable. An interruption resulting from a family argument, a Jesus reproving question. And notice, secondly, Jesus' earnest warning against covetousness that introduces his parable in verse 15. Now for the remainder of our time, I wish to ponder our Lord's solemn warning that follows his reproof, a warning he uses to introduce the parable that follows. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. Jesus' parable forms his practical exposition to this warning. But notice this morning from that warning, let us consider Jesus' startling warning against covetousness. Let us notice four points. First of all, the wide audience intended in Jesus' warning. And he said to them. Earlier he said, man, who's made me an arbiter? Here now he speaks and he speaks to them. Not just those two boys, but to everyone that was in the audience. Brethren, covetousness or greed is a common sin. It is common to one degree or another in all men. And so he addresses his warning to the whole congregation. Notice, secondly, the alarming cautions introducing Jesus' warning. And there are two of them. Beware, be on your guard. This word beware, it means take heed, watch out, take care. It's used many times. It speaks of a person who needs to pay close attention to something. Jesus used it in verse 1 here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the other, be on your guard. And this exhortation, to be on your guard, is usually used of a, of a watchman carrying out his duty. It's used of shepherds guarding their sheep, and it's used of homeowners watching over their home, Luke 2.8. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, and here's our word, keeping watch over their flock by night. Watching over them, caring for them, not allowing anyone to come along and steal them. And Luke 11 and verse 21, Jesus says, When a strong man fully armed guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. He watches, he cares for his goods by, by being alert to any potential thief that might break in and steal. Peter warns his 
readers to guard their souls against the evil influence of false teachers, lest they fall from their steadfast commitment to the truth of the gospel. Second Peter 3 and verse 17, this word is used again. Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Brethren, we are to pay careful heed and to be on our guard, not to prevent the loss of livestock or personal property, but we're warned against losing something far more valuable, and that is our own soul. It doesn't matter what you gain if you lose your soul. Note finally under this point that both of these commands in, in Jesus' warning to take heed and to be on our guard, they are imperative, present tense verbs. They're imperatives, they're commands, they're present tense, which means we must constantly beware, we must constantly be on our guard. We're not to drop, we're, we're not to rest on our laurels, we're not to drop our guard. We are to be always on our guard, lest we fall prey to the folly and sin of covetousness. You see, brethren, vigilance is the order of the day. All day, every day, is what Jesus is saying. And when we do succumb to the sin of covetousness, we need to immediately repent of it and seek fresh cleansing from the blood of Christ and from the help of the Holy Spirit to fight against falling prey to this sin again and again. So what then is covetousness or greed, which we must be on our careful guard against? Notice thirdly then, after seeing the wide audience and the alarming cautions, the focus of Jesus' warnings against every form of greed, or you may read covetousness in your Bible. Jesus warns us to take heed and to beware of greed in all of its various forms. So what is greed exactly? Well, one Greek dictionary puts it this way. It is a disposition to have more than one's share. It is to want more than what we really need. The basic meaning of this word is to be dissatisfied with what we possess. It means to want more and more and still more. Notice, first of all, the origin of covetousness. Covetousness is not outside of us, but inside of us. It's rooted in our heart. Covetousness, Jesus says, is a heart disease. Mark Chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed, and he gives a number of sins, including deeds of coveting. It arises out of a dissatisfied heart. Notice second, covetousness is many associated sins. It's many bosom companions. We might say partners in crime which are all wicked like itself. In other words, covetousness is often associated with and it expresses itself through many other sins. Mark 7, verses 21 and 22 again. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts. Why do people engage in these sins? Often they're an expression of covetousness, not having what they want, and so they take what they shouldn't. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus doesn't leave any stone unturned here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 29 speaking about our characteristic spiritual condition before we are saved, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. 
evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Why do we speak evil of some people? Because they have what we don't have. Why do we talk evil of them? We want to, we want to hurt them or harm them in some way. Envy. We want what is theirs. Strife. James says in James 4 and verse 2 regarding murder. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We see covetousness coming out of the heart as the ground of all of these sins. Covetousness is, it frequently expresses itself, especially through sensuality and sexual sin. These are one of its partners in crime, commonly listed together when we see covetousness or greed mentioned. Mark 7, verse 21 and 22 again. Coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality. Why is there rampant sexual sin in our culture? Because there's rampant covetousness, a heart that wants something that is not its. Ephesians 4, 19, we see this too. And they, having speaking of the Gentiles, unconverted men and women, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, greediness, wanting to carry out these kind of sins. There's never enough. You always want more. Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, do not let immorality or impurity or greed be named among you. Thirdly, notice that covetousness is common among false teachers and religious charlatans. They have a claim, they probably have money, they want more acclaim, they want more money. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5, Paul contrasts himself with such. For we never came with flattering speech, you know, telling people what they want to hear, you know, greasing their ears, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 and 14, speaking of the greed of false teachers. And in their greed, they will exploit you, notice again, with false words. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, they entice unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They're well adept at greed. Peter calls them accursed children. And brethren, as, as we speak these things, no doubt certain popular television preachers may come to mind. You'd think Peter was alive today in describing them. Finally, notice that at its root, covetousness is but an expression of idolatry. That is to put something before God. Colossians 3 and verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, or mortify your members which are upon the earth. To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. What we say when we are engaged in greed and covetousness, we're saying that God isn't enough. We can't be happy unless we have this or that thing or person. Commenting on the idolatrous essence 
of covetousness, one man has observed that what it craves, it worships, what it worships, it makes its portion. To such a God there is given the first thought of the morning, it's on his mind when he wakes up, the last wish of the evening, tomorrow maybe, and the action of every waking hour. He lives to satisfy himself with what he wants and doesn't have. Brethren, so serious is the sin of covetousness that it will keep greedy people out of heaven. Ephesians 5 and verse 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Notice fourthly the assumption in Jesus' warning, and that is this, that covetousness is a common sin. The root sin of our first parents was discontentment with God's rich provision. He said, of any tree in the garden you may eat, except this one tree, you're to leave it alone. And what was it that rose in the heart of our first parents? It was greed. God isn't a good guy because he's withholding that from me, and that's what I want more than anything else. And it led to disaffection from God. He's an ogre, he's mean, he's stingy and tight-fisted. And as children of Adam, we are all born with this serious malady. Now, brethren, we would be naive if we think that covetousness is found only outside of the doors of the church and not in the hearts of God's people. Jesus' sober warning here and the many cautions in the New Testament teach far otherwise. Specifically, Paul teaches that greed tightens our grasp upon good gifts that we may give to others. You remember 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. He's encouraging the church in Corinth, down there in the south of Greece, like their northern brethren up in Macedonia, to give very generously to the need of brethren over in Jerusalem and Judea. And he's writing them to prepare them to give that gift. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. Your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift, not affected by covetousness, not affected by that sin that destroyed Ananias and Sapphira. They said they gave a certain amount to support the saints, and they lied. They held back part of it. Their sin wasn't holding back part of it. Their sin was telling they'd given all of it, but they hadn't. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. So he says, you promised to give this amount. Don't let your hands tighten up upon what you promised to give, but open-handedly give it all. Brethren, God's grace enables us to release our tight grasp upon blessings that we would give to others. And even this morning, I heard one of you speaking about things that you've given away to help others. My heart warmed when I heard that. You didn't hold on to it, you didn't even sell it, you gave it away when you could have made some money on it. That's the sin of generosity. That is the, the grace of generosity, not the sin of greed. Secondly, let us ponder the solemn reason behind Jesus' warning here in verse 15. Be on, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Why? 
for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Brethren, the world's manner of reckoning, its equation is this, that the more a person has, the more he truly lives. This was the thinking behind the rude brother's interruption. He believed he would be happy if he had more. And this philosophy still dominates the world's thinking. In fact, it's baked into our fallen spiritual DNA. Notice, first of all, that covetousness is a liar. It ever promises what it can never provide. It promises happiness, but delivers only disillusionment in this life and then eternal misery in hell. Greed promises life, but delivers only death. How common is the thinking that our life does consist in our possessions? That the greater the quantity of possessions, the better our quality of life. You've heard the old statement, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's that mentality. We sometimes speak of a man's value in terms of what he possesses, judging his value by the size of his bank account or the square footage of and location of his home, the number of the big toys that he possesses. But the fact remains that when a person dies, he leaves everything behind. I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. No such thing. Brethren, the covetous later find that what they lived for wasn't worth dying for. The increase of anything, be it fame or fortune or possessions or pleasures, can never fill the empty, aching void in a person's soul. All these folks that are engaged in the hookup culture, they find it. There's nothing more empty than that. They're looking for love. They just fulfill their lust and they're left emptier than the relationship before. Oh, I can't call it a relationship than the incident. If I buy this or I buy that, when I get it, then I'll be happy. And so we can run off to the store and buy little things or we can plan and buy big things. And maybe they're good things in themselves, but we put our heart in them. And therefore we find that they don't satisfy. Life, true life, abundant life is found elsewhere. Material and temporal things can never satisfy a spiritual need. Life consists not in the accumulation of possessions or in the fulfillment of sensual desires. Oil magnate, billionaire John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much is enough? And his answer was very telling, a little more than what one has. Playboy editor-in-chief Hugh Hefner had all that his flesh could ever desire, but he was never truly happy. Neither man died satisfied with life as God intends. King Solomon had it all by way of wives and women, fabulous riches, Worldwide renowned scientific discoveries, philosophical knowledge. People would traverse the world to come to listen to his wisdom. His later response to the pursuit and enjoyment of all these things is a message that we all need to hear often. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all striving after wind. 
Notice second, that covetousness is a ruthless slave driver. It's never satisfied. Living the life of Riley, living life in the fast lane, it can never satisfy the soul. Think of a person cast adrift on the open ocean in a boat and he's run out of water. And he begins to drink salt water thinking that it will quench his thirst. And the more that he drinks, the thirstier he becomes and finally he drinks himself to death. Such is the effect of greed upon the heart and life. You see, covetousness is a cruel mocker. It promises more and delivers only less, and then it kills. True life, life worthy of the name, comes not from the accumulation of things or the satisfying of carnal desires. True life is found in the possession of God himself. This was known by the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and beside thee I desire nothing on earth. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You may have every other thing in this world and not have life. But if you have Jesus and nothing else, you have true life. So what does this say to us by way of a few parting counsels? First of all, let each one of us honestly admit and sadly confess the presence and power of covetousness in our own life. See, our fo the focus of our attention isn't on these two arguing brothers or upon anyone else. The focus of our attention is upon ourselves and our relationship with God and our satisfaction with all the blessed benefits that he rains down upon us. You see, if you reply, well, I'm not guilty of this sin, then I suggest that you are woefully ignorant of your own heart. The first step down the road of repentance is recognition of this sin. Covetousness is woven inextricably into the warp and woof of the American psyche, is it not? Now there are covetous people in poor countries, obviously, because it's a heart sin. But we have so much. Brother, a friend of mine reminds me, he lives in a foreign country, and he says, Americans and Canadians, they are filthy rich. The poorest are rich compared to many others in the world. But see, this is all we know and we take it for granted. And we're not satisfied with what we have. So commonplace is this sin that we're blind to it. Many in our affluent culture regard greed as our American birthright. It's a character quality more considered a virtue than a vice, more to be congratulated than condemned. And he's an up and coming guy. Look at him. He's doing this and getting that. He's the envy of everybody that I know. And brethren, this is easily accounted for, for we're trained in our early days of life by this innate sin. Commonly, the first four-letter word out of our mouths is mine. And the next is more. Typical symptoms of covetousness are discontentment with life and especially dissatisfaction with those possessions God has given us. The richest man in Israel, Ahab, he wasn't happy until he possessed Naboth's vineyard. Nor was Balaam happy until he had pocketed Balak's wealth. 
Brethren, let us understand, though, that no increase of possessions will ever cure this soul sickness. It will never be enough. Listen to Solomon again. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. It's emptiness. It's meaninglessness. So let me ask you this morning, as I've asked myself, what don't you have that if you did have it, you think you'd be truly happy? What is it? Is it an expensive car? Is it a larger home? Is it a higher paying job? Is it a spouse or a a better spouse? Brethren, without Christ, none of these things can satisfy. But with Christ, you may be satisfied without them. Grace teaches us more love to Christ. More love to thee, O Christ. Secondly, let us learn to be content with God's provision as an antidote to covetousness. This is something we have to learn. The Apostle Paul had to learn it. Philippians 4, verses 12 and 11 and 12. Not that I speak from want. He's writing to a church that had more than once provided him with material things, loving apostolic care packages sent by members of the church while he was in prison. For I have learned to be content. You see, he didn't know that until God taught him that. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And he knew the former better than the latter, obviously. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Brethren, contentment is the cure for covetousness. A content person is glad for what he has, and he's not grieved for what he hasn't. If love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, contentment is the root of all manner of joy. Lord, teach us to be content with what you provide. How we need the grace of Christ. Thirdly and finally, let us seek God's help to continually mortify the deadly sin of covetousness. Colossians 3, 5 again. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I suggest that covetousness is the mother sin. A mother rattlesnake bears a brood of live young, each of which is as deadly as the mother. So the sins spawned by covetousness are all full of deadly poison. Brethren, we must kill this sin and all of its children or it will kill us. But don't think that you can do this in the strength of your own flesh. You can't do it. You try to do it, you'll fall and you'll fail every time. This thing is bigger than we are. It has the power of of lust in our heart. It has the power of the temptation of the world. It has the power of the evil one tempting us onward. We successfully do battle against the sin of covetousness, not in our own strength, because we have none, but in the strength of God's Spirit, trusting the promise of His continual presence and power. Writer to the Hebrews comments, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, For he himself has said, 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And he's speaking to those that had lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost all of their income. He says, trust in the Lord. Don't lament what you don't have. Be joyful in who you do have. And he will provide for you. He'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will provide all that you need according to his riches and glory. Well, may with these words, we be prepared, God willing, next time to consider the parable that follows. Let's pray together. Our Father, how can we not hear the teaching of your word in this matter and coming to the, the mirror of that word and see, seeing what manner of people we are? Let us not go away forgetting, but let us run to Christ on the feet of faith and repentance and say, Lord, you are my all in all. We sang earlier, be thou my vision. Lord, might Jesus fill our vision and not the things, the perishing things of this world. Lord, we confess that we, we often want and we don't have and we become dissatisfied, thinking that if we had just this or that, that we would be truly joyful. But Lord, it's your joy that is our strength. It's joy in you. And we pray that you'd help us. We pray to be content with what we have and not grieved over what we don't have. Help us to find in Christ our all in all. And if any are here that can't say that for me to live is Christ, we pray that you would speak yet to their hearts, show them who their real God is, what they're trusting in, what they find their happiness in contemplating and doing, and show them how empty these things are compared to the fullness of blessing found in Christ. Lord, do wonderful work in each of our hearts this day, that we might fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author, finisher of our faith, and the one who provides all things that we need. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.